This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Welcome to Global Storyline. I'm your host, Dean W. Arnold, and this is the very first installment of our podcast. Today's topic is the death of Vince Foster. Uh, I've written a book on this subject called Hillary and Vince, uh, a story of love, death, and cover-up, uh, which is available on Amazon. If you go and search Hillary and Vince at Amazon, you can get that book. Uh, and our guest today is Hugh Turley. Uh, hello, Hugh. How are you doing? I'm fine, Dean. Thank oh. you for inviting me on the podcast. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, and, uh, I might call you Turley. I might call you Hugh. We'll go back it's and forth. Either way, we're people personal. call me by both. Yeah, personal friends, so I might I might go either way. Um, uh, uh Turley is uh, one of the country's top experts, if not the top expert, on the Vince Foster murder. Uh, he's the creator and author of FBICoverup.com. And uh, you can uh, uh, correct any or make any clarifications if I don't get this, this intro right, Turley. He's co-author of the book Failure of the Public Trust. And he's also co-author of the final 20 pages of what is known as the Star Report, which is the appendix. Uh, or he's the... He's the uh, um, co-author of the final 20 pages of what is known as the Star Report, and that's the appendix of the document that was submitted officially to Congress by the Office of Independent Counsel. So that's uh, that's that's the introduction of you, Sterling. You can tell you can tell us uh, what else you do, and you can well, let me clarify. Let me clarify something right there. Yeah, sure no yeah. yeah the, the Star Report is a, is, is popularly uh, there's a thing he did. It's called the Star Report. That's really his uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, investigation. But it does get confusing because he, the independent counsel, was allowed to do an interim report, and this is this was uh, sort of historical for independent counsels before they issued the final report. In fact, the uh, the Star Report was not the final independent counsel report. There was another one that came later by his successor, Robert Ray. So even the Star Report was an interim report. But the uh, the report that that I wrote the appendix for with uh, Patrick Knowlton and John Clark was known as the, his star's report on the death of Vincent Foster. And uh, people get it confused. I, I, journalists do this all the time. They talk about the star report, and it's, uh, they think it's the same thing that Foster's in the star report. But I think some of this confusion is by the press is deliberate. It gets people confused. Well, that may be so. And let me just take a brief second here. Um, you know, you and I have been in this, looking at this thing for 20 years. But uh, let me just take a second and explain what we're, what the heck we're talking about, because there actually are a bunch of people who really haven't heard much of Vince Foster, don't, don't know what we're talking about. So Bill and Hillary Clinton came into the White House in 1993, and about six months into their tenure there, um, their uh, close friend from Little Rock, Arkansas, their attorney, their uh, uh, Hillary's lover uh, and best friend uh, and co-colleague uh, at the Rose Law Firm in Little Rock. He was found dead uh, as deputy White House counsel uh, right near the White House, a couple, couple miles from the White House at a place uh, near D.C. called uh, Fort Marcy Park. He was found dead there by gunshot. And uh, it didn't take long, a few hours, for all the evening news and everybody else in the media to to declare it a suicide. Uh, but immediately, various uh, factoids and other things began to emerge pretty quickly to make it a suspicious death. And 
and it has only gotten worse and worse and worse and worse as as the days, months, and years have gone on. Uh, it's turned out to be the highest uh, government official to be found dead under sus uh, suspicious circumstances since JFK. So that is who Vince Foster is. That is what the Vince Foster uh, story is about. And um, and once you go ahead and start. Uh, you by telling us what uh, what got you involved in this in the first place. Well, I was, I guess, like most Americans, I, I learned that Mr. Foster died. I didn't really know anything about him until he died. He wasn't a well-known person in the White House. He wasn't a popular or central figure in the press, but he, uh, I, was a, I was having coffee and breakfast table with my wife on July 21st, the morning after, and in the paper... It said that this uh, White House counsel's body was found at a park by an anonymous passerby. And I immediately said to my wife, well, I don't know who that person is, but they're, they're a witness to a crime scene, an anonymous passerby. So how can the police not know who that is? And I was kind of intrigued by that from the very beginning because I just couldn't see how someone could find the body and we not know who that was. It seemed like that was a very important person. So I just, you know, went on with my life and followed the press on it a little bit, but there wasn't really too many details reported. It was kind of hit-and-run journalism, and uh, even the police had said, I remember in the paper, it said that the police were turned away from the foster home the night of the death because uh, the family was too distraught to talk to the police. And I, yeah, that was another thing that I thought was kind of strange, because how do you turn the police away when they're on a death investigation? You can't just say, I'm not in the mood to talk to you. I, I just don't think you could do that, but that, some of those things just didn't make sense to me. Well, then a, a year later, a whole year passed before I really got interested in the case deeply. And this happened because there was another uh, murder that happened in 1994 when Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron uh, Goldman, I think his name was, were murdered. She was the wife of the famous uh, football player and movie actor O.J. Simpson. And when that murder happened, I mean, the press behaved very differently than they did with the Foster case. They told us all the details. They told us that Mr. Simpson had a white Ford Bronco. I didn't know what kind of car Mr. Foster had. They said that uh, the, the people that found uh, the bodies were the next-door neighbor who was walking their dog. It was an Akita. I remember the dog was an Akita, and the dog led their owner uh, to the bodies. And so we know who found the bodies in that case. And I thought, well, I came back to myself. I was wondering, well, I wonder who found Foster's body. They never did tell us that. But there were so many details about the Simpson case, more than I really cared to know. And they were on all the radio stations and all the television stations at the time. It was Some people called it all OJ all the time. And that's pretty much the way it went. But it was exactly the opposite of how the press treated the Foster case. So it was August of 94 and all this OJ Simpson crime scene details were on the radio and I'm driving my car trying to find a station that it wasn't on. And I had been out uh, performing. I'm a professional magician. And I was on my way home and I, I looked at my map and I noticed this Fort Marcy Park. And I thought, that's the park where Vince Foster's body was found. And well, I knew about the O.J. Simpson crime scene, but I didn't know anything about the Fort Marcy Park crime scene. So I thought, well, I'm going to go into that park and look around. I've, I've lived in Washington for about 30 years and I'd driven by this place, but I'd never been in there. So I found a place to park at the backside of the park, and I walked into the woods, and not knowing really what I was looking for, 
and I found two men in there. One of them was Reed Irvine, the chairman of Accuracy and Media. Are you, are you timing these uh, sirens in the background to add uh, effect, can, effect to your story? Well, it's a little effect there. <laughs> it's the fire truck. Now, uh, and anyway, let, let me back you up just a second because sometimes I have a hard time being a good listener. Um, you, did you just happen to be driving by the park when you? When you uh, well, I, I was I was performing in that area and I was on my way home and I I I saw the map, I saw the park, and I thought, well, it reminded me. Why did you have Why did you have a, a an acute interest in the Foster affair? Do you think? Uh, you know, I can't remember that far back, Turley, but uh, was there a number of people like you who were just reading reports and and no. just kind of getting whatever? Did, did oh something, no, no, no! Did something Nobody, give you a, Did someone something give you an acute interest in the in the no, uh, case? I, I really not any. I was just curious about the crime scene because of the O.J. Simpson case. I just wandered into that park, and I met Reed Irvine there. And uh, he was chairman of Accuracy and Media, and I, I uh, asked him if, if if he knew where this body was found. And he said, "Well, that's why I'm here." He said, "Some people say the body was found in that direction. Some people say it was found in another direction." And I said, "Well, that was a year ago." I said, "How can people not know where the body was found?" He said, "Well, it gets more interesting than that." And he he uh, said, "Come on down to my car." And I went to his car, and he gave me a a deposition of one of the witnesses. And invited me to come to his office the next day, which I did. And he let, gave let me, me let, yeah. Let me stop you there. Uh, let's tell people who Reed Irvine is. I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, a, I'll just say briefly he uh, he would appear on Nightline, rather uh, you know on on occasion with Ted yes. Koppel, and so he was you know he was a fairly weighty figure just by the fact that he'd appear on the nightly news. Which if oh you're, yeah, if you're uh, thirty or younger back then, there was only about three TV stations, maybe a yeah, couple a couple of a couple of cable stations maybe so if you're on the right. evening news you you pretty much got everybody him, in america yeah. what else did accuracy media do? well he, he was very well known in, among especially in the journalism community See, reed was a media critic and he kind of came at it from the conservative point mm -hmm. of view as a right uh you know usually finding fault with the washington post and so on but he was a, a critic of the media but he was a really honest man and he he would uh try to hold the media accountable with a little newsletter that he published and he would hold press conferences and he would, like you say, he would be up here on Nightline in certain programs. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, he, then the, all the journalists knew him. I mean, Mike Wallace would call him on the phone and all these famous people, everybody in Washington knew Reed Irvine. If you were a journalist in journalism, the New York times people knew him. Everybody knew Reed. Now I met him in the park and he did was, you, re did you recognize him as a, Oh no, 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 I didn't. No, I didn't know who he was. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> but he, okay, but he uh, he was a very sweet guy. And he said, "Come on over to my office." So if you're interested, I'll give you some documents. And he gave me uh, what was then available—not all of it, but what was available—of the Park Police report. And I've never read a police report on a murder like this or a crime like this. So it was very interesting reading. I mean, you're reading witness statements and what people said they saw and so on. And it was, it kind of pulled you in and it was because it was real and it was, a uh, had to do with something that actually happened. And I, and of course I, by this time I'd visited the park cause that's where I met Reed. So I could kind of picture the scene and, and the park police uh, documents were, were really very interesting. Well, then I wanted to read more and, and, uh, and I started to get into more documents as documents became available. There was some Senate hearings in the summer of 94 and those, uh, produced an enormous quantity of of uh, interview reports from the FBI and depositions that were taken by the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and so on. So then there was a, like thousands of pages of documents, 
And when you start to read those, it gets even more interesting. And, and you, I've, you start to notice a pattern like the, I'll give you an example, the, the higher up the official, like the lieutenants and the captains, their witness statements were always very vague, contradictory, and not really very reliable. But the lower level people, the firefighter, the paramedic, the private, you know, the, the, the beat officer, those people's reports rang a little more true and were more consistent with one another. And it seemed that the, I started to notice a pattern that the lower level people seemed to be a little bit more reliable than the higher level people. And I thought maybe that's how they became higher level people because they were willing to go along with. Okay, yeah. Now let me, I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to continue. I'm, I'm not going to uh, derail you on that story, but I just want to, for the average listener out there, I just want to give a few specific examples. You'll, you'll find these in the book that I wrote. Um, but uh, let's just talk about some of the specific examples of, of really thousands of pieces of corruption. But for instance, uh, the kind of thing Hugh's talking about, uh, the first medic on the scene, a guy named Todd Hall, he he testified that uh, he saw somebody in an orange jumpsuit jumpsuit running away from the body. That's um, correct. And uh, and you know that's a pretty major deal. But you never heard about it in the media. Um, no, I'm not even sure it, it it came out in the park, park police report. But um, uh, you have that. You have uh, another uh, twenty. The twenty six uh, people that were on the scene, none of them saw a hole in the back of Foster's head, which is what the official investigations all say, and what the one person who said he had a hole in the back of his head was the coroner. Nobody else testified right. to that. Um, a bunch of people did see a uh, a small hole right underneath his jaw, which the the reason all this matters is if Foster killed himself like they say he did, which he put a gun in his mouth and fired it, then a, a hole would emerge in the back of his head. Uh, right. But, and a big mess, too. Yes, exactly. And nobody saw that. No one saw the mess. They, uh, several of them did see a small little wound right below his jaw, which is what you expect if if a Foster, who was like 6'5", you know, if a normal-sized man was holding a gun up to Foster and killed him. So right. so several people did see that. Uh, what else can we talk about? The first witness, allegedly, who saw Foster uh, saw no gun and saw his palms up. The next witness saw a different gun. The next guy saw a different gun. Um, so that's that's some of the... Just, it was, there were a lot of contradictions. A lot, a lot of contradictions, a lot of hanky-panky, yeah. a lot of... Uh, it, yeah, it took uh, me a while to sort that out. I mean, yeah. it was... It was, a, it was it, at first, it became a little overwhelming because you thought, how can you... How can you what, what, who's telling the truth here? Because people contradicted each other. Right. And one of the things that was kind of interesting was the, the blood, because people were describing the blood as dry and black. And, uh, you know, it was just a little bit of blood. It was on his collar and on his neck. And then other people would say that the blood was red, it was flowing, it was wet. And th this is entirely different from dried black blood, and then you got wet red blood, and and then I, I thought, well, what's going on here? And what we what we eventually did is we took all these witnesses and put them in order uh, of who saw the body first, second, third, and so on. And you could see this transition at a certain point. It went the blood went from dry to wet. Well, they moved the body at the scene. The police did. They moved it a short distance to stage a stage the suicide crime scene. But see, that wasn't clear at the beginning. In the beginning, I had all these contradictory statements about blood, and I couldn't figure out who was telling the truth. 
until I put the people in the order. I had to figure out what was the order that they saw the body. And then things start to come emerge and be clearer and you could kind of see what was going on. Let me ask you a question. Uh, I don't want to get us too off the rails here, but uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard uh, in his book uh, mentions that at some point uh, one of the park police officers basically started to crack and admitted that they had altered the crime scene. Do you happen to know who that park police officer was and what they were talking about? I, I, I don't know who that was because this, this was grand jury stuff that I, I don't know. Okay. So we don't know. It. You don't know how Ambrose figured that out, but that, you know, that may tie in with what you're talking there is that maybe what the park police officer was, who was cracking was talking about was admitting that the body was moved. Right. Yeah. There, there were, they, well, he was putting the screw, this prosecutor, Miguel Rodriguez was putting the screws to these people and then he, he was uh, removed, but he, he, he that was he was really putting some pressure on people, and, and yeah, and, 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 and we might get to his story in a little bit, but I want you to we, we'll, we'll ramble and ramble and ramble if I don't keep us kind of guided. So I want you to continue right. your story of Reed starts introducing you to all these documents, and pretty pretty, yeah. soon, pretty soon you meet uh, um, Patrick Knowlton and John. Well, Clark. I would tell, tell us that whole story. So tell us your how <laughs> keep keep telling yeah. the story of how okay. you got well, involved, kind how of, you got involved and got into this deep. Yeah, way. it's kind of interesting. I was a uh, I got it actually was a year later when I met Patrick, and he was a he was a key witness. He was one of the first people at the park, and he was important for a reason. We didn't even know what the reason was at first, but I I remember when I first read his account. The police had misspelled his name. It wasn't so. You, I mean, I didn't even know the. They, they would, would. This is one of the ways they would cover up a crime: is the police misspell witnesses' names in the reports. Then, if you want to track that witness down and interview him yourself, you can't find them because the name isn't right. So, Knowlton's name was misspelled. It was spelled N O L T O N, and it's actually K N O W L T O N. So he was uh, someone I, I didn't. I didn't realized who he was and I was trying to figure out what, what he'd seen that was important and I didn't know what it was but see he'd seen something very important that's why they had to misspell his name and uh, eventually uh, when uh, he got re-interviewed several times they were trying to get him to change his story you wonder well, what did the guy see what does it you know it turned out it wasn't what he saw it's what he didn't see and that's a that was another twist sometimes you think well Witnesses see things. Well, sometimes they don't see things that should be there. And what he didn't see was Vince Foster's car. And the car should have been there because the story is that Foster drove to the park and committed suicide. Well, I'd known from looking at the documents that his car keys weren't there either because they weren't found at the park. And now you've got Knowlton, uh, you know, as the key witness because he's early on. He was there about 4.30 when Foster had probably been dead for maybe a Right, you know, a little bit before that time, uh, so he he was an early witness. So the car should have been there early on, and they really wanted him to say he saw Foster's car, but he didn't, so he wouldn't say that. He's a, he's a very good witness because he's got a terrific memory. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when I first met, well, I, I thought I first met Patrick. I went to this uh, a convention in Washington. It was a conservative convention of conservatives. And Reed Irvine had a booth there, and. Uh, I went there with this journalist, Christopher Ruddy, who turned out to be a not such a good character, but we'll get I to trust, him later. I trusted him at the time, and when we went in the this room, he there was a big hall, a lot of people, and he said, "There's Patrick Nolte. Do you know Patrick?" And I said, "I I don't I don't I haven't met him," 
So he introduced me to Patrick Knowlton. And Patrick said, I know you. You're Hugh Turley. And I said, I don't know you. He said, yes, we met. And he, he remembered that he met me uh, a year earlier in, let's see, actually it was, nine, no, two years earlier, 1993 at the uh, Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown. We met. And, and he remembered I was just a brief meeting with him there, but he remembered me. He's got a very good memory. And I did not remember him. But I, when I got home that day, I looked at my appointment book from 1993. It was August. And there was his name in my appointment book. And the, the funny thing was that was about two weeks, two or three weeks after Foster died when I met Patrick the first time at the Four Seasons Hotel. But then I would meet him again uh, in 1995. And uh, at this point, I had done a lot of research, a lot of reading, been through a lot of documents. And Patrick's had an attorney because he was been harassed and intimidated by the feds. And I mean, he, he'd been through a lot by that point. And he and his attorney asked if I would help them because they knew I had a, this background and all this research I'd done. And they were just getting started on the documents. So they asked me to help them. And I, of course, I said, sure. They, wanted to pay me. I said, no, but they forced me to take a check. They said, well, why don't you take this check? And of course, I eventually ended up giving it back to them because they were, they put all their money into this thing, uh, filing court documents and Xeroxing stuff. And, uh, just, they had a lot of, a lot of expense, you know, with a legal case. And, you know, so I was, I helped them do as much as I could, but I didn't want to take any money from them. So I just was really a volunteer researcher. But that's how I came to meet them. And that, that, at that point, you know, we were off, off to the races with the courts and we were fighting the FBI. And uh, OK, I'm going to stop you there because that because you've, you've given us a good uh, a good account there of how you hooked up with uh, Patrick Knowlton and, mm -hmm. and, and John Clark and and went off to the races with them. I, I want to uh, spend just a few minutes uh, talking about specific FBI corruption, deceptions, lies, cover up. Um, and that sort of thing, intimidation, um, because uh, I found uh, that some of those small little stories are some of the things that get me the most angry. And uh, I was just reading one of the reviews of my book on Amazon.com, and one of the reviewers said the same thing, that the, the FBI corruption will just make you puke. Um, and, uh, and one of the... Interesting things about the Vince Foster case, which I think is instructive for a lot of things that happens uh, in our world today in terms of tragedies and federal government involvement, is that there's just three or four kind of FBI agents that are kind of very close to the action. They interview all the witnesses. They deal with all the primary evidence. So it doesn't take a huge number of people to pull off a conspiracy to cover up the murder uh, of, of death, of, of Vince Foster. So let's just, let's just get into a few specifics. Let's talk first of all about the car. Let's talk about a couple of the witnesses. Like, uh, I'll just give some examples to get us started, but yeah. okay. Patrick Knowlton, <laughs> he testified that he saw a early Honda light tan, early eighties Honda in the yeah. parking lot. They can't yeah, hold on. Just go ahead. Just before, before you go, before we get the specifics of evidence, let, let me, let me pick up on just what you talked about the FBI to give people just a, an overview of, of what what they are, what the FBI is, and how they operate. Uh, and then, then we'll get the specific evidence and, and the individual FBI agents. But you are correct that there's just a few FBI agents that, that are on, the, on a case. 
a handful of people. But the uh, one thing that people don't know that is I found very interesting, this is always the way they, oper they operate. The FBI will interview witnesses, and, and they do this orally, verbally, with two agents, and they take notes, handwritten notes. And after they take their handwritten notes, they type up a report of the interview. And this gives them an opportunity to finesse a little bit and, and to fudge things because they've interviewed the person and then they have written notes, handwritten notes, and then they get into a typewritten form. And sometimes the, the evidence gets changed a little bit by the time it reaches its final typewritten form. It's not at all what the person told them. Now that's that's just how they operate. Now what what one of the, I, what they should be doing, especially in the 21st century, well, if they interview a witness, they should videotape the interview, and it should be just recorded. And then you've got the witness's own words on the video. Uh, I mean, there's no reason not to do that, except by but by doing it the way they do, they can change witness statements when they type up their reports, so they don't videotape their interviews, and they really should. And if there was anything that was going to help fix the FBI, it would be if, if, if Congress could pass a law or somebody that would say that all FBI interviews have to be videotaped and then, you know, archived. And then we can oh, always go back and look at the, the video. Good but they point. don't do that. So that's one problem. Yeah, well, now, let's get it. Let's get into the specific evidence. Yeah, the next we'll, thing we'll, that happens with the, from that yeah. because yeah. we'll do it the bigger, because but the bigger they, picture with the, with the agency is that that the, the people bigger picture want, bigger yeah big picture bigger picture is it's a, it's like a it's a it, yeah it's a fraternity and they all whatever an agent does they all go along nobody they it's a team and they're team players so they're yeah they're not all they don't all have to be bad in the sense that they know they're all part of a conspiracy they just all know that they're on the same team so that's yeah, that's how that. it gets that's right, how it so works let's, let's talk that's about, how it works let's, let's talk about the car. Um, Patrick the car. Saw, okay. Well, Patrick the car saw, was like his. He saw a brown Honda, and so did the, so did all the other witnesses for that matter. They saw a brown Honda with Arkansas tags. Now, Mr. Knowlton thought that this was Foster's car because it had Arkansas tags, and he read in the paper that Mr. Foster was from Arkansas, and he was found dead at the park. So he just assumed that was his car, and he said he was telling the police that he saw Foster's car at the park. It was a brown Honda, but what he didn't know is that that was not Mr. Foster's car. The truth is, Mr. Foster owned a Lexus, and he had a registration for a Lexus in his wallet when he was found. Now, his children drove a gray Honda, and it had college stickers on the car window for Vanderbilt, where his daughter went, and the kids shared the Honda. He had three children. They were 21, 20, and 17 at the time. And the children's car had the beer cans in it and all that, you know, stuff, because that's what they did. And uh, somehow uh, that car ended up at the impound lot. And the police said that was the car that was found at the park, was this gray Honda, because it was the closest thing to a brown Honda that the Fosters owned, was a gray Honda. So the story came from the police that uh, the FBI started to finesse these interview reports, like Mr. Knowlton's. They didn't say he saw a gray Honda, but they said he saw a later model, which was consistent with Pat saw like a 1983 Honda. Uh, the Foster family car was a 89 Honda, so they put 89 in his report when they typed it up. And then the, they, they made it appear that he saw this other car. Uh, but it, it's, it's uh, in, you know, they changed the, uh, you know, brown 
became gray in witness statements and so on. And now, that's let's, how they, let, they and, let's, and let's talk about a few more of them. The, the medical examiner said he saw an orange compact car, but they never included that in the uh, no. in, in his in his report of his testimony. They left it out. Right. Uh, right. Let's the firefighters on. type of a report. When the firefighters got there, they typed up a report. and It, it was part of the record for uh, Fairfax County Fire and Rescue. If you read their report, it says Brown Honda in their report. That's what, that, that's what they typed. That's but what let's they talk, saw. Let, let, let's talk more about what FBI agents did to uh, deceive or confuse. Uh, I think there was a couple other witnesses where they inserted a gray Honda where they didn't say that's gray correct. Honda. Uh, um, Jean Slade was one. She was an early witness, walked up into the park. She told Ambrose she saw a, a tan-colored car, but uh, dark reddish-brown. But, you know, it, but in her report, it said gray. And then, of course, the police reports themselves wrote gray because the police were part of the cover-up. So they wrote gray in their reports. But see, there was one police officer, Cheryl Braun, that collected all the reports of the other officers, and she types up a report. So some of these other people, like uh, Fornschill, who was the first officer at the park, Kevin Fornschill, he didn't even write a report. There's no report from him. So you don't know what he saw. Okay, and let's do the same thing with the gun, because the FBI did a bunch of monkey business with the gun, uh, putting words in people's mouths. Other people said things that didn't make it into their... Right. Uh, the interview. Let's, so let's talk about the gun. Well, the most egregious thing the FBI did with the gun was when they interviewed Mrs. Foster because the Foster family owned a silver revolver and Mrs. Foster thought that her husband had shot himself with a silver revolver because that's what they owned. And it was and, some like old and, classic uh, collector's item piece, right? Well, it was, it was a pretty nice nickel-plated kind of gun that I think his foster's father had owned. But see, the gun that he was found with was a black gun. And uh, when the FBI interviewed Mrs. Foster, they showed her a silver gun, and she, you know, she said she said she identified a silver gun. But see, that's the problem with that is it's not the gun that was at the scene. So this was so uh, yeah. This so let me get this right. So so typical. So they asked Mrs. Foster, is this your husband's gun? And she said, yes. Does it look and like, then, does it look like, does it look like the gun? They didn't say, is this the gun? They would say, does it look like the gun? See, this is how they interview people. When they interviewed Patrick, they'd say, could you have seen a gray car? It could have been, couldn't it? And this could have been the gun that your husband owned, couldn't it? And they, they, they give you some wiggle room so that when they type up, their report they can make it the way they want it but if the, the average person you know they're gonna a lot of people just roll over and, and they want to please the fbi agents they don't want to be confrontational with them they want to help them with their investigation and they ask their questions in such a way so they can get the result that they want to get because they already know what the outcome is they know it's going to be a suicide and they just want to get all their reports to support that so okay, well, let's go, let's go through the gun. Let's let's go through the gun thing again. So the first supposed witness did not see a gun at all. Well, Dean, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that official that first witness is. I don't think he really was there. To be honest with you, and this let's talk about it. I'll tell you what. Let's talk about it. People, he called is, a confidential witness. He's CW, called a confidential, confidential witness. witness. And this is, is something, he CW one or is he just, is, is yeah. he the only confidential witness? 
He's the only confidential witness. Okay, so he's a confidential you, witness, yeah. CW, first guy on the scene, supposedly. And this goes back to what I told you when I first got interested. I was at my kitchen table with my wife having breakfast, and I said the body was found by an anonymous passerby. And I said, who was that? I really wanted to know who found the body. And this thing kind of peeled back like layers of an onion because the, at first it was the, told we were told that it was CW, the confidential witness. So here we got a witness that doesn't have a name, and the FBI is protecting his name. Well, why are they doing that? And he comes forward through G. Gordon Liddy. And his story didn't ring true because he said that when he found the body, he thought somebody, you know, had hit him on the head or something. He didn't know what had happened to him. But uh, then he's telling Liddy that he came forward to Liddy because he didn't want to end up like that guy. Well, what does he mean, end up like that guy? Because what does he mean by that? Uh, and Liddy, of course, is. Well, he was Watergate scandal, and he's a former FBI agent. And I mean, he's still FBI, really. He has friends in the FBI, and he, he likes to brag about his FBI friends. So Liddy's, you know, this is the well, guy just, that just real quick, coming. Just real quick, just, just real quick, people who don't know, G. Gordon Liddy was one of the Watergate burglars back in 73 yes. or 74 with Richard Nixon. Right. And went went to prison for several years for his escapades when he got out. He became a uh, kind of a conservative uh talk show host and was was actually quite good and quite popular. Right. And so that's who uh He was Tur entertaining. Yeah, he was that's the, so that's who Turley's talking yeah, he about. Was entertaining. And, he and since he had all these FBI connections but, he was able to get people to come on his show. Well, yeah, but it's very suspicious that this guy comes through out through G. Gordon Liddy. And of course Liddy doesn't tell us his name. And uh, it took a while to figure out who he was. And I, I finally, you know, it was years. Well, first, the first thing we knew was Ambrose and Reed. I was with them one day, and they actually let it slip out. They mentioned his name, Dale Kyle. That's the first I knew of his name. And I pretended like I knew it all along because they were talking about Dale Kyle. And I thought, who's Dale Kyle? Well, Dale Kyle was CW. He just died a couple of years ago. He was living in Midland, Virginia. And... So Dale Kyle supposedly found the body. Well, then even further years later than that, when I was at the archives, I found out that his name was really Kermit Dale Kyle. It, that was his full name. Herman, and Herman. when I found his Kermit, Kermit, K-E-R-M-I-T, Kermit like Dale frog. Kyle. Like right. the frog. Kermit the frog. Right. Now, Kermit, Kermit Dale yeah. Kyle. Dale Kyle. Now, see, when okay. he his story is that he went up to the park because he had a pee. Well, to get to where the body is, the parking lot, you have to go about 785 feet uphill. Now, if a man has to pee, he doesn't walk that far up a hill in the woods. It's too far to go if you have to go. If you really have to go, you go to the nearest tree. But that was his story, that he walked all the way up there and found the body when he went up there to pee. And then his story is that he drove up to Turkey Run, which was a park up the road where the park maintenance workers uh, were based. And he said that he saw two park maintenance workers there and they were at a picnic table. And he told them about the body and he, he told them to call it in because he, he said when he drove in there, he couldn't see any, any, there weren't any phones. Well, if you go up there, the phones are right there. You can't miss them. They're like, the, as soon as you drive in, there's two pay phones. So that story, his story doesn't ring true. And then the story from the two-part maintenance workers that were at the Turkey Run, one of them says they were sitting on the back of the pickup truck. Kermit says they were sitting at a picnic table. 
One of them is black. One of them is white. One of them says that they both talked to Kermit, Dale Kyle, CW. The other one says, no, he talked to the black guy. Kermit says he just talked to the white guy. One of them says he was sitting. One of them says he was standing. I mean, their stories are so different, the three of them. None of them are consistent. And the idea that he didn't see the phones doesn't make any sense. So I really don't think he found the body. But I'll tell you who I think did find the body. And this just kind of came out by accident, I think. There was a reporter uh, up in uh, Boston for a paper up there. His name was Mike McCallery. He's also deceased. He, he died of colon cancer. But McCallery was the like a what they call a, a police reporter. And he always reported on crimes and police and so on. And he wrote an article for a, a tabloid uh, publication up there that said, you know, that the, the foster case was closed. It was uh, the police have solved the crime. It was a suicide. He was it was all consistent with the park police. And he said he'd seen all the park police reports and he he saw everything. And he was going to tell you the whole scoop on the foster story. And it was a suicide. But in this article, McCallery lets out something very interesting. And I think it's true. I think I think he actually got the truth from the police. And he, he told the truth in his article by accident because I don't think he, he realized he wasn't supposed to put this in there. But what he said, and this really makes more sense, he said that the uh, body was found by the park maintenance workers who were at Fort Marcy Park drinking beer when they should have been working. And they, of course, if you're drinking beer, you got to take a leak. So they were drinking beer and they had to take a leak, and then they found the body. And then what they did is they got in their truck and they drove up to the Turkey Run, see where the payphones are, to call it in. But they weren't supposed to say they were down at the park drinking beer. They weren't supposed to be drinking beer on the job. And they could lose their jobs and their pensions. So they were sort of compromised. And the story was, see, those guys never got interviewed. There's no interview of those park maintenance workers uh, by anybody because officially they didn't find the body. They only did talked to CW. Track them down? Did you ever try to track I, them down? Well, I did, yeah. One of them moved to Ohio. Chuck Stowe was one of their names, and uh, I can't remember the other fellow's name right now, but he lived out in Upper Marlboro. I went over his house one day in Upper Marlboro, but he wasn't, he wasn't home. But they, but they were, uh, I think they were the guys that actually found the body. Because McCallery, what he says makes sense in second beer at the park maintenance headquarters where your boss can look out the window and see you drinking beer at, at your place of business. You don't do that. They drink beer up at the park, at Fort Marcy Park, where it's secluded. People don't see you. People do things in that park. So that where do they, you, know, you wouldn't do. Where do they find CW and why do they find CW and why does he volunteer to do it? Well, they needed somebody to find the body. And they didn't want it to be those two guys because those two guys saw a brown car. They saw a bullet wound in the neck. They saw that there was no gun. They saw all the things they weren't supposed to see, and there were two of them. So I think they became the anonymous passerby. And that, you know, we don't know who found. And then later CW emerges on Liddy, and uh, he's got his story, and uh, nobody knows who he is because he's just known as CW for some reason. And I think the reason is they don't want anybody to talk to him because he really, he really didn't find the body. So uh, what, what made him interesting, though, see, they always try to, to suck you in. The FBI is very clever. This is something they, they did recently 
there was a, a press report in the Daily Mail where two FBI agents said that Hillary uh, triggered Vince Foster's suicide by humiliating him. And a lot of conservative people that are opposed to Hillary jump on this because it's some, saying something bad about Hillary. It's like, oh, yeah, she triggered the suicide. So, see, they get sucked in to thinking it was suicide because Hillary gets blamed for it. Well, in this case, what they did is they got a, a witness who said he didn't see a gun. So people gravitated to him. They jumped to CW. They said, aha, the first witness didn't see the gun. He's the first witness. Well, guess what? He's not the first witness. He was not even there. But they got this story that he didn't see a gun to suck people in that have doubts about this case to want to buy him as a witness. But I don't think he's a good witness because his story about what he, who he talked to up at Turkey Run, it just doesn't ring true. It, it doesn't make any sense. And even his story, I found his, his 302 reports at uh, the archives, and there's like six different drafts of his FBI interview reports. They cross out this. They rewrite it. There's first version, second version, third version, fourth version. They got so many versions of his FBI 302 reports. It's, it's like they were working on it, you know, to make it make sense. Yeah, you know, and that's, but that's fascinating, this whole, this whole thing that so you, I don't think, you, yeah, I don't think, this is, and that's fasc- really, what's fascinating about this in. is, is, is the, at, at the very, very, very beginning of this investigation, the very first person who saw it or supposedly saw it or did saw it, this, this whole thing is chaos, it's compromised, it's layers upon layers of deception from the very beginning. I mean, and and the and and as as you go on, you just see more and more and more of it. It's a uh, it's really one of the most cockamamie uh, investigations in history. It seems like to me, or you know, it, it's right. gotten a lot of an investigation. I'm going to stop us there because we could obviously go on and on and on about a zillion things. But I want to redirect our attention to something you brought up once already, and, and because it's not talked about much, I've you know I've I've already done a lot of interviews on this subject, and I've listened to a bunch of interviews, and I've read a bunch of things, but no, not not hardly anybody talks about the weirdness and strangeness of uh, Christopher Ruddy. So I want you to talk a little bit about him. Well, Ruddy, uh, this is I'll tell you, this is he's a he's a he's a very central player in this, but the. First, but first, also, identify who he is for people who don't. Christopher know who Ruddy about. is 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 a, was a journalist, and he uh, he was a young journalist writing for the New York Post early on, and then he switched to the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and he was the one journalist that was asking questions about the case and and raising questions, and and he looked like he was different from the rest of the press, and people, uh, you know, that were questioning the case were attracted to him because he was the only one that was writing any stories that were critical. But the press is the, is the really the, the keystone of this whole cover-up because the, the cover-up would not succeed without the press. As I told you, with the O.J. Simpson case, they were all over it. Who found the bodies? What kind of car? Blood of the Bronco, bloody gloves, all that stuff. But on this case, the press was, was playing a role of cover-up, and they led the cover-up. And they didn't tell anybody about who CW was. They didn't. They weren't even interested in who found the body, from the very beginning. And they, from the very beginning, the press lied about the police being turned away from the foster home because the police were in that home for an hour and fifteen minutes, and the family told them that their Vince was not depressed. His sister Sheila said he's not depressed. His wife was asked directly. She said, "No, he was not depressed. We don't know why he did this. We don't know why he's dead." And see, the press kept this covered up. Well, Ruddy plays a role in the press. 
He's going to be the critic. He's the outsider in the press. So all the press is saying suicide, and Ruddy's going, well, I don't know, there's some loose ends here. So he's the critic, but he's a false critic. But people like myself, I didn't know that. He used to come to Washington. He used to stay at my house. And you know something funny? Sometimes we'd be out, and at the end of the day, he'd have me drop him off. Guess where? Where? At William Sessions' house, the former FBI director. He's going to the FBI director's house after he leaves me. I mean, he's connected to the FBI. Ruddy's going over there. And I say, why are you going to the FBI director's house? He say, well, he said his wife is real interested in the case, so I, I got to brief her. And he said, don't worry about me. He said, I'll take a cab back to your house later. Just drop me off. I took him over to William Sessions' house a half dozen times and dropped him off. And because I trusted Ruddy so much, I didn't think there was anything wrong there. But now, I, now let me stop you just for a second. I want to help people who are listening to get a gauge of what's happening here. Uh, uh, there's different ways to, to describe uh, someone like Chris Reddy if if he is what uh, Turley is describing, possibly. Some people call it a limited hangout. Some people call it um, uh, uh, lead, lead the opposition yourself. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of terms for it. Uh, for, right. I guess there's fox guard in the hen house. But, but um, basically um, what happens is if – Let's let's say in America, if if the left wing is starting to sense that this right wing conservative kind of um, uh, gun owning type uh, militia type mentality is starting to grow in the United States and they're and they're getting scared of it. Well, one of the things they'll do to try to uh, deal with it is they'll they'll put someone they'll plant their own militia conservative maybe even Nazi skinhead type people uh, starting, starting those kind of organizations and attracting people to them uh, to sort of lead the opposition for them. And it does a number of things It uh, first of all, it kind of compromises the, the movement. You know, you had a lot of good, just constitution loving people. And now the movement gets mixed up with, you know, skinheads and Nazis right. and weirdos and revolutionaries and bomb throwers. So that's right. one that's one thing that does. The second mm-hmm. thing it does is this. If you gather everybody who's a potential threat to the left wing uh, into your movement and you got a list of, you know, 5000 people in this organization. Now the now the powers that be have have a list of all these people if they want to. Uh, you know, uh, work, right. you know, deal with them, com- compromise old, them, old, neutralize old them. Yeah. So these are, these are yeah. the reasons why you'd have, uh, some people think that, uh, uh, well, the, the government does this all the time. You know, this was done during the Vietnam war. They did uh, all the people that opposed the war got infiltrated by hippies and drug users. And if it, instead of saying, you know, make peace, they said, make love, not war. Well, you know, it should be, it should have been make peace, not war, but they said make love, not war. And then it became a movement of promiscuity and drug abuse and, and they discredited the movement. And uh, people say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not one of those beatniks or I'm not one of those hippies, so I must be for the war. And it, people got confused. And this is what Ruddy was doing. He was yeah. leading this parade. I also call it 99-yard football because people run with the ball and then they get to the goal line, they drop the ball. <laughs> and, and, no, uh, perfect. No, go ahead. So continue with yeah, Chris Ruddy. Ruddy, Ruddy, Ruddy had, I'll tell you when I got wise to Ruddy was he told me, he said, stay away from John Clark and Patrick Knowlton. He said, you can't trust those two guys. And he said, I, he told me that he thought 
John Clark was secretly working for the feds. Well, takes one, spent, to know, takes one to know one, huh? Yeah, I spent a lot of time with Pat and John, and I knew they were good men, and I, I knew they were trustworthy and honest men. And when Ruddy told me that, I thought, I don't know about Mr. Ruddy. And then I, got, I started to think about him going over to Sessions' house all the time and the things he was feeding me, and he was always leading me away from the FBI. I was finding evidence of the FBI uh, falsifying statements and so on, but Ruddy always wanted to blame the Park Police and the Clintons. See, oh, it's the Clintons and the Park Police that did this, you know. And he, Ruddy never faulted the press or the FBI. And those were the two key uh, organizations that made the cover-up work, the press and the FBI. And Ruddy never went there. He would always blame the Park Police and the Clintons and keep the heat on the Clintons. Well, of course, now Ruddy's a friend of the Clintons. I mean, he's come out. Completely, he said Hillary would make a great president. He's a friend of Bill Clinton's. I mean, he's Ruddy's uh, completely out uh, from where he was once. You know, he's and he, he was he was just a fake guy that that a lot of us fell for. I mean, I he used to eat at my dinner table. I I trusted him. I thought he was a good man, and and uh, he appeared to be a good man. But uh, you know, so it was a it was a long lesson for me to this whole experience was uh, very educational. <laughs> that was yeah. just part of it. But the press really is the key. And it's, you know, there you get your conservative press, you got your liberal press. But on this case, they're all together. They're all together on the cover up, left and the right. And well, even let, the critic, Ruddy. Let's ask a question. Uh, we're going to get into the bigger, bigger broader picture. Uh, of course, this uh, this podcast is called Global Storyline. But uh, one of the larger storylines that actually I don't know what the storyline is or I'm going to ask you, but. What is it about this Vince Foster case that that causes the F, you know, the director of the FBI is uh, colluding possibly with a journalist like Ruddy? And then you've got yeah. Ambrose well, Evans. Well, he's a got, former, got, former director. Okay, former director. Yeah. You've right. got Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who is the uh, financial uh, correspondent for the London Daily Telegraph. What? Why is he so interested in the Vince Foster story? Um, you know, you told me a story that I, I wouldn't mind you retelling about uh, uh, the, the medic Richard Arthur, you guys met with him like 15 years later to ask him some questions. And, uh, you you know, there's a bunch of FBI's and spooks following you guys and taking pictures of you. I mean, this is 15 years later. What is it about this case that has the highest levels of government absolutely obsessed with it and wanting to make sure that nobody gets near it? Well... I don't know. I don't know what what it is. I mean, Ambrose, as you mentioned, this financial thing. Uh, he's a he's a financial uh, editor for the London Sunday Telegraph. But there were also uh, there was a guy named uh, Thomas McArdle who wrote for Investors Business Daily that did some good Foster reporting. John Crudell, who's a business uh, financial editor up in New York, he was pretty good on the Foster case up to a point. But then uh, he's completely gone over to the other side now. John wrote an article. Uh, just this year, you know, calling Foster's death a suicide. John, I don't know, but he was a, he was a financial writer, but he was one of the only ones that wrote about it. And so did uh, Michael Morrison of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, strategic Investment was run by James Dale Davidson. They did a lot of Foster reporting. So it seemed at the time, for some reason, you know, it wasn't the sports reporters and it wasn't the, the news reporters. It was the financial reporters that were doing the Foster reporting. That was kind of an, uh, I don't know why that was. I, I've often wondered about that, and I don't know the answer, and I don't know why Foster was killed. 
we just know that he was killed, but who did it and why is another question. And, and why is it so covered up? I, it's, these are all good questions, but I don't know. But it's not, it's, it's an ongoing cover up, so it's not, it's not going away. Why don't you go ahead and tell me, tell, uh, repeat the story, uh, here that you told me about a week ago. We talked about this. First, I'll just, I'll, uh, identify Richard Arthur was the second medic, I believe, that was on the scene. The first medic I mentioned earlier, Todd Hall, got there, saw somebody running away from the body in an orange jumpsuit. Um, mm-hmm. or I, I say jumpsuit, that's what the prisoners wear. It was one of, you know, one of those orange things like a construction worker would have, you know, mm-hmm. a, a vest, an orange vest. Right. Um, and he was the first medic and, and just a few, you know, uh, half a minute, a few seconds after him, Richard Arthur appeared and he, he saw some things that were very inconvenient for the FBI. Uh, one of them was, uh, he saw a, uh, what he, he identified it as a bullet hole. He said he had no question that there was a small bullet hole under uh, Foster's jawline. Yes. Um, and uh, he also, what, what, what else did he say that was uh, difficult for the FBI? I can't remember. Something to do with well, the, he, the back of the head. The gun. The gun. He said, oh, well, that's he, right, said the he, gun. He, he saw an automatic pistol, square-shaped. He'd been in the Army, so he knew what it, he knew about weapons. And he, he said it was not a revolver. It was a, it was a pistol, an automatic pistol. And he said it was probably a nine millimeter. Uh, that was his guess. He said it wasn't consistent with the small hole in the neck. Didn't make sense to him. So he, but Richard was, I, I went over and found him at the police, uh, fire station and talked to him. And I remember he, he took his uh, index finger and he made, uh, like he pointed it with his thumb sticking up like it was a gun. He put his thumb, he put his index finger right under his jawline there like he's pointing up onto his neck. Next to his jaw, so I saw the hole right here. He just like it was pointing. Like if, it, if he had fired that thing, it had shot the like a twenty-two caliber bullet up into the brain where it bounced around. But it didn't make an exit wound. But that's that's what he saw, and he he was very stubborn about it. Sort of like Patrick as a witness. He said, "I saw what I saw, and I'm not going to change my story." And the the questioners at the Senate uh, deposition said, "Well, what if we told you, uh, you know, that it was different?" He said. I don't care what you tell me. <laughs> he said, I know what I saw. <laughs> I saw, you know. So, he, yeah, so he was an irritant in terms of a, a witness. Um, now, yeah. you, you you went and tracked him down at the fire station and had that conversation with yeah, him. Yeah, I talked to him there. And then the later, John and Pat and I went out. We met him a couple times at restaurants. But whenever we meet him, you know, the, 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 you know wherever we go, really. But, but how, how much later? How many years later? Well, let's see. We were working on our lawsuit back then. I was so bad in... 97 i'd say probably four years after okay so but but you know what john and pat and i we would go out on the street i mean it wasn't unusual for us to go into a restaurant and the feds would come in and you just spot him i mean i i remember reading about ernest hemingway going into a restaurant the night before he died and he you know he would always take the uh what we would call the the fbi chair you want to when you go into a restaurant you go to the corner and you sit so you can watch the door. And then you can see the agents come in. And they sit around you. But, you know, you don't want to, that's where you sit. And that's where Hemingway used to sit, because he used to be tailed by the FBI. But I would, we would go into a restaurant. And one time we were in a restaurant, and the, the feds came in, and they were sitting there all, like they were, were four, uh, all, like, all corners around us. And we just asked the maitre d', can we get another table up in the corner over there? We went up and do another section of the restaurant and left all the feds behind. 
got a little private area. Yeah, tell they, tell the story would, about going uh, going to your car and getting a camera and taking a picture of the guy that took. Well, a yeah, that was at the, at the Tasty Diner over in Virginia. Uh, we were coming out, and the, the guy took a picture of us as we came out of the restaurant. And I said, "Why did you take our picture?" He said, "I didn't take your picture." He's putting his camera away, and I said, "I saw you take our picture." He said, "I didn't take your picture." So I had a one of these digital cameras that had just come out recently. In those days, they were kind of a new thing before they had cell phone cameras. So I. I went in my trunk, I got my digital camera, and I walked into the Tasty Diner there, and I saw the guy in the booth, and I took a picture of him. And he looked up at me, and he says, well, you got my picture, and I got your picture. He just admitted it to me. I mean, he, <laughs> he took my picture. You know? So we had each other's pictures. So, you know, but that's what the, and it wasn't for any other reason than just to be an irritant. You know, they wanted to let you know that they were following you and that, you know, you were being tailed. When the FBI does a surveillance they don't sneak around you know they 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 were they're in your face like you know look we're following you today and there's nothing you can do about it we're taking your picture and you know we do whatever we want to do and that's what they do uh let's move on to uh we can hear all that cluttering going on there Um, sorry that's all right um let's talk a little bit about uh the question of the clintons uh, how involved were they in this murder? Uh, we, uh, and I've talked to you long enough to know that I don't think you know for sure, but uh, go ahead and give us your opinion of your what you would surmise in terms of to what degree the Clintons were involved in this murder. We know well, they didn't, what, what we do know, and I took this angle in my book, which I think was very helpful. It was really from your lead is what we do know is that they were close friends with Vince Foster. Hillary was a lover and one of his best friends, and they did nothing to question the cover-up. You know, right. it's, it's obviously a murder. It's obviously covered up. There's obviously all this government corruption, and his two closest friends, quote-unquote, said nothing about it and tried to do nothing to get justice for this man. So we do know that. Right, but, but beyond that, what is your inclination in terms of your opinion on what what role they may have played in this death, if any? Well, I don't. I mean, over the, 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 the I like to say most people right off. A lot of people think, well, the Clintons had him killed because he knew too much. That's a popular right. Myth, I think right, and that's that's often said. That's the first thing people say. Oh, I think they must have killed him because he must have known too much. Well. That that uh, hypothesis is dependent upon the fact that you you think you have a free press. Like as if as if Foster knew too much. What's he going to do? Go to the press that covered up his murder? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, the, we don't have a free press. If we had a free press, we we would know that Foster was murdered, and we the press would be asking questions of who did it and why. But that's not the kind of press we have. So the idea that Foster could go to the press and tell them and be a whistleblower. That doesn't make sense. I mean, Patrick Knowlton and Richard Arthur, these are witnesses who were at the scene, particularly Knowlton, who managed to attach an appendix to Ken Starr's report with, uh, you know, six areas of a cover-up sourced to 25 uh, federal investigative records. I mean, if the press isn't going to report that, that, you know, you can't really go to the press because you know too much because they're not going to report it. They didn't report the appendix to Starr's report. They're not going to report anything Foster tells them. So that, that idea is out the window. So what do you got? Well, you got, like you said, the, the, you got these two friends of the deceased who seem to have no interest whatsoever in this ongoing cover-up. And that's very bizarre because it reminds me, it's like uh, 
gangsters. And if, if, if gangs kill each other, the gangs don't go to the police or the press and say, Hey, they killed, you know, our gang member, you know, I mean, they don't do that. They just, they retaliate another way or they, they don't, they don't work within the law. And the Clintons behave like gangsters as far as, and, and Foster was probably a thug and a gangster and he got killed by the gang or his own gang or a rival gang. Somebody killed him, but the, uh, the Clintons are not going to speak up about it because it would expose their own involvement in, in the gangsterism. So that's, that's my hypothesis that they were, they were, they're gangsters too. And, and gangsters don't, uh, complain when other gangsters get killed. It would expose the whole operation. Do you have a favorite pet theory of what, uh, this, uh, insider gangster, uh, machination was, or you, do you just sort of mm, not, you know, you don't I, really... it's really hard. This is a question I, I tell you, people always ask me, they ask me these questions. I'll say, who did it and why? I mean, I always get that question and, I, I like to tell people, because I studied philosophy in college, that, uh, you know, Aristotle, when he wrote about the eclipse, said, before you ask why there's an eclipse or how there's an eclipse, you have to know that there's an eclipse. And at the present moment, Foster's death is still a suicide, officially, and by the media and in our history books and what we teach in our colleges, it's still taught that it's a suicide. And what we have to do first is know that it's a murder. And once we are all together agreed, the press and the, and the academia and the government, if we all agree that it, that it is, in fact, a murder, then we can start to ask who did it and why. But we're not at that point yet. It's, so, it's like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, the answer to your question We don't know is, there's an yeah, eclipse yet. Yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't want to speculate on that. Okay, let's move to another question. Um, why does the Vince Foster murder still matter today? Because it's ongoing. It's an ongoing murder cover-up. It's, it's, it's there, and it's so interesting to see how it. Just this uh, summer, in June, and then in August here, uh, there was a story created by FBI agents that worked in Starr's office, Coy Copeland and uh, Jim Clement. I think Patrick Knowlton was interviewed by Clement a half dozen times. These very men that were part of the Foster cover-up in the Office of Independent Counsel, in the FBI, they were hands-on, part of the murder cover-up. They put out a story through the Daily Mail in London that Hillary Clinton triggered Foster's suicide by humiliating, humiliating him in front of the White House staff. And this is just a, just a total blatant lie because Mrs. Clinton was in Hawaii at the time. She left uh, for the G7 summit on July 5th in the early morning hours went out to Andrews Air Force Base. They flew to Japan, and she took her mother with her, and they toured Japan. They went to Korea for a day, and Bill Clinton was with them. And they all went on to Hawaii, and then Bill left them in Hawaii and went back to Washington. But Hillary stayed there with her mother, and joined. Uh, she was joined by Chelsea and two of her friends. And this was in the weeks prior to Foster's death. Now, these two FBI agents, Clement and Copeland, with an author, uh, Ronald Kessler, are claiming that Mrs. Clinton humiliated Foster a week before he died, just a week before. They were very specific about that. It was a week before he died that she humiliated him at the White House in front of the staff, calling him a Hicktown lawyer. And he was so humiliated and so devastated that he went out and killed himself. And they say Mrs. Clinton triggered this suicide. Well, this is totally false because she wasn't even in the country. 
once again, once again, overseas. Once again, a diversionary, a diversionary tactic, as you were saying. People grab onto this because they're like, oh. This they makes, don't like Hillary. Yeah, this makes Hillary look bad because she caused right. him to go kill himself. But, but what the FBI is really trying to do is trying to get trying to reinforce the message that it, it was a suicide. It was a suicide because, you know, with with Trump mentioning Foster and a lot of Foster stuff being resurfacing with Hillary right. uh, running, uh, they're they're afraid that they might lose control of that message again. So they're just trying to reinforce it now. Yeah. Since you've and, brought it up, but that's your. This is to answer your question. It's current. I mean, it's an ongoing. They're still they're lying. Even today, they're making up lies. Yeah. Well, let, right since, now, since you brought it up, um, let's talk about Jim Clement um, uh, because uh, he is, as you said, was one of the handful of FBI agents that was very hands-on involved from the very beginning of the foster investigation. He interviewed Patrick Knowlton several times. Um, and he is became back then. Well, I guess he was involved with child uh, kidnapping and child abduction. And I guess the pedophilia that would be involved with that sort of thing. He was the agent that, that would, you know, investigate and be involved in those kind of things. And then he became like the, go-to guy for the FBI and the CIA uh, for uh, this kind of thing? I don't know, but he's, he's for some reason, you wonder he's, why he's a guy the with that background, why is he involved in the foster case? Yeah, well, you, you got to ask that question. But why? then uh, uh, give us the title of that uh, cover that you found in the National Archives. Well, there was a, this was, a, you know, I've done this for a lot of time looking at a lot of documents. But Patrick and I, I guess you could say we leave no page unturned. And, you know, some of these documents, they get Xerox and re-Xerox and re-Xerox. And we have seen copies of the Park Police report. And what was in the Park Police report, these just endless pages. You see them over and over. Every time you go through a stack of documents, they're in there again. And we were into another box of documents with Park Police documents. But we turn each page because you never know. There might be something in there that we haven't seen before. And we're the two guys that know when we haven't seen something before because we've seen everything. And we're always looking for something we haven't seen. Well, one day we're turning the documents, and lo and behold, we find this uh, FBI document amongst the park police papers. And it must have been misfiled, I guess, because it was in there by itself. There was nothing in front of it or anything behind it except park police documents. And in this particular piece of paper, it has an FBI logo on it. And at the top of the page, it said, Child Abduction and Serial Killer Unit. And then under the FBI logo, it says, Questions for a Suicide Expert, Vincent Foster Death Investigation. And then it was dated March 11, 1996. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to stop you right there. I just want you to repeat what it said on, on, above the logo and below the logo because it's very powerful. Above the logo, it, said, it says Child Abduction and Serial Killer Unit. And you got the FBI logo. And under that, it says Questions for a Suicide Expert, Vincent Foster Death Investigation. And uh, it says Prepared by FBI Supervisory Special Agent, and then the name is redacted, so you don't know who's what the name is there. So, but it's this is an FBI document. It's a it looks like a cover sheet for something. I don't know what followed it. There's a staple you could see on the top of the page. It was stapled to something, some other stuff. 
But uh, why child abduction serial killer unit in the Vincent Foster death investigation? I don't know. It's just a mystery document, but it is a curious thing to be there. And so just, to, and so just to clarify, Jim Clement, who has become the go-to expert for the FBI and CIA on child abduction and, and this kind of thing, yeah. is interviewed on cable network TV as the right. expert, et cetera, et cetera. He was right at the very beginning of the Vince Foster investigation, one of the key handful he of was, FBI, FBI agents. He, had, yeah, he was in the Office of Independent Counsel. He was there. And I, I don't know. I don't know what this means. And, and no he's also this, he's also the same guy, him and another uh, FBI agent that have leaked these couple of stories the last couple of months about Hillary, uh, Hillary and Vince. Mm-hmm. Try, Trigger, you know, and triggering the suicide. She yeah, humiliated Yeah, the, 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 the distracting stories. They're, they're, and it's, you know. it just can't be true. I mean, this is, this is an outright lie because she's in Hawaii. I mean, you can't tell me she's yeah, at the White so, House humiliating. So, so that's the story. It's a dirty agent. It's corruption. And he was involved from the very beginning. And you got this strange document in there. What did Vince Foster have to do with child abduction and serial killer unit you know what what's going on well, there? you know i'll tell you I'll tell you what one thing we do know i mean what we do know is that ken Starr was leading the investigation he also was an attorney that defended the pedophile jeffrey epstein and uh clement worked for star and star's office so there's some something going on on there and of course jeffrey epstein was a you know he's a friend of uh really donald trump's and bill clinton's these people are all connected. Yeah, there's, uh, there are some connections there. Yeah. All right, uh, let's see if we can make this the last question. We'll we'll we'll, we'll go as long as we want to go here. Um, uh, tell us what this saga of Vince Foster has done for uh, to you personally. How has it affected you personally? Well, it's it's uh, it's it's been it's it's been life changing really because I I I had to I mean I had when I came to this I I. Had pretty good trust in my government. I mean, I thought there were some bad people in the government, but I, I basically thought there were some good people on Capitol Hill, some honest senators and honest congressmen. I thought there were some honest journalists. There had to be some, I thought, some, <laughs> you know. But uh, I had some some faith in my fellow man, and uh, I didn't think everybody was uh, dishonest. And, I, you know, but in a sense, uh, everybody's kind of willing to to go along, uh, to just get along. I mean, maybe maybe everybody in the FBI is not part of this cover-up, but everybody's loyal to the FBI that's in the FBI. And if you're going to make it in journalism in this country, uh, you're going to, you know, write the official propaganda, and you don't stray from that, and you don't have a job. I mean, it's just that simple. People have mortgages, and they got kids in school, and, they need to make a buck, and people end up going along with things uh, that are immoral and that are illegal and that are wrong. But <clears throat> that's kind of that was kind of a shock to me. I was kind of, I just didn't, I didn't believe that the corruption was that broad and that wide, that it included these professions like the Department of Justice, uh, academia, our colleges, the curriculum that's taught in our public schools. Uh, I didn't think it. You know, we're we're told a bunch of things that aren't true. And, of course, it's very important in our lives because when you start to make decisions in your life as to what you're going to do, you have to have information and knowledge that is true. Because if you got information that's false, you can make bad choices. People make, 
they choose evil instead of good because no one chooses evil because it's evil. They choose evil because they think it's good. And people start choosing bad things because they think they're good because they got bad information. So it's really, it's, 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 a, it's a big uh, philosophical problem here where you wonder, how do we know what we think we know? You know, we, we have this, I had a view of the world and it sort of got shaken up. Uh, it's, it's, it got me questioning my, my whole life, really, and everything that I thought that I knew. So it's been very life-changing for me. I ended up becoming, I was raised in a Christian family, and I've kind of come back to my Christian faith, uh, and I've had to re-examine that. And even, uh, I guess I'm kind of getting myself ahead of the clergy now, because I'm not too happy with some of the clergy, but, uh, you know, they're all we got. But I'm, I'm, I think I've, from the whole experience, I've, I've been, found myself getting closer to God and further from my fellow man and really being less a part of the world and seeking something higher. So it's been a good thing for me in that sense. But that's been the, the big change in my life. And I've kind of brought my wife along and a few friends. Uh, you know, I, I got I got some friends that have kind of grown spiritually too. So I think it's that's, that's a good thing. That's definitely a good thing, and I'm glad you ended it that way because uh, up until you got to that last part, it's pretty depressing. Um, yeah, well, yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of people, uh, really, there's, there's a lot of people in alternative media who are doing good work and exposing stuff like the Vince Foster affair um, who, who that's, where they, that's where they stop is they've, got, they've grown more and more cynical. The government is corrupt. The world is corrupt, and... And and besides kind of spitting in the wind and cursing the darkness, they don't yeah. they don't they, they haven't turned over the next leaf. So so the fact that you shared that is pretty encouraging. Yeah. And and I'm glad you did. Um, yeah. And I'll and tell you, the- I, I'll, I, I tinker with uh, with uh, possibilities that we actually can make a difference. And there are some things that we could do. Uh, but we do know from the scriptures that, that the world is systemically corrupt. So I, I, I think you're, you're, you're in a better position than I am for your argument. <laughs> well, I get to a couple of things I'll tell you at the end here. So one is a friend of mine. I told him, I, I've, I said that I, we were talking about the truth about things. And I said, the truth is really very disturbing. And he smiled at me and said, yes, but he said, it's liberating. And that is so true. And, and then the other thing I should tell you is that, as far as changing things and making things better, uh, the medieval philosopher Thomas Aquinas said that, that the, uh, the common good cannot be fittingly maintained in the absence of virtuous citizens, particularly those in leadership positions. So if we're going to have good leaders, which we want to have, we have to have virtuous citizens to draw from. We all have to become more virtuous. And we need to, to work on you know, the cardinal virtues, the theological virtues, and the intellectual virtues, and and teach our children and one another to be virtuous. And if we make a virtuous community uh, and have a virtuous society, we're going to have virtuous leaders. But we've really gotten away from that. We're a very immoral society. So it's, it's pretty dark at the moment. But there is hope, as you say. Yeah, I would, I would say we have to we have to we have to be more virtuous. And one of the things being virtuous is being honest, of course, and truthful. Yeah, and and I think uh, I, I appreciate what you have to say, and I, and I think uh, 
um, some of the alternative media people that I follow the most, uh, you know, are returning to the uh, traditional worldview that that it's not just uh, human beings and leaders and governments and corruption, but there's there's angels and demons, and there's uh, there's God and the Holy Spirit, and there's there's a lot of things going on that are broader than just what we see, and pr- so prayer can make a difference, um, and uh, and then we've you know we've got a we've got an interesting script going on uh, beyond just uh, empires and, and, you know, nations rising and falling. We have, we have, you know, what, what God's doing on the earth and what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is, uh, is moving toward. So there's a lot of things that are positive and interesting that we can, we can look forward to, but sometimes it takes, uh, you know, our current, you know, idol that maybe we're beholding to, and it might be a false idol of our government that we think it's pure and righteous and wonderful when actually it's got a lot of problems. Sometimes it takes, you know, losing the rose-colored glasses there to push us towards the uh, the higher faith. That's true. Can I ask, let me ask, can I ask you a question? Sure. Something that just just in my mind is, I, part of your book is about Bill's and Hillary's, you know, love affairs and so on. And I'm, right. I'm not as familiar with that because that's not my specialty. Right. But my friend, uh, Gary Martin, David Martin is his pen name, but he, he read your book and he was very impressed that you had found this author, Joyce Milton. Yes. And she's not well known. I would like to know how, you know, sometimes the truth is so hard to find. How did you find her book? How did you find her writing? Well, uh, the truth is I, I don't know um, because, because <laughs> I wrote it eight years ago. Um, oh, okay. and, uh, and it's been so long, uh, but I, I'm sure what I did is I'm, I, I, I'm sure I browsed through everything that was written about Hillary Clinton. And, and I uh, want to get her book. I'm curious about that book. It looks like an interesting book because some books are hard to find like your book. For example, your book is not a book that's in the bookstores and it's not, uh, easily found. It's a very good book. And I, but it, but the, some of the best stuff, uh, even the, in the scripture, you know, it's hard to find. You got to go looking for the truth if you're going to find it. But the, yeah. you've, you've, your book is not not going to be a New York Times bestseller. Well, no time soon. Uh, but it's, but it's uh, a it's, very good book. But and it's, that, it, that, that, it's selling pretty well on Amazon. I'm pretty pleased with it. And uh, oh, good. But, but since and since you brought it up, let's plug it again. You go to Amazon. You, send, uh, you search Hillary and Vince, and it comes right up. Five eighty eight uh-huh. for the Kindle version. Version uh, ten ninety nine for the paperback version. And, yes. uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's a, and it's a, it's a, it's exciting new world where you can do, uh, Kindle and print on demand. And I, you know, uh, I've, I've self-published a lot of books and it, you know, I had to, you have to come up with, you know, five, $10,000 sometimes for all the front money before you can, uh, you can start selling books. And now with, uh, Kindle and print on demand, you can invest almost nothing. So it's pretty exciting. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope it sells well because it's, it's, it really can open some people's eyes to things that they've never imagined, and you know, things you don't. Knowledge like that is just hard to find because it's it's not out there. You got to go looking for it. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I agree with you that there's a lot of pearls out there that you have to really go search and find. Well, I think we've uh, I think we've reached uh, okay. a, a stopping point here. Uh, it's been great, uh, Hugh Turley. Uh, I'm really glad to be able to interview you. I know uh, some of your partners in crime, especially Patrick. And of course I've gotten a lot of interviews because I've written this book, but I don't think you've been interviewed quite as much. And I think you've got a lot to offer and I really appreciate you taking the time. 
And uh, anybody else who's listening to this uh, interview and who also does interviews uh, should should give uh, Turley a call uh, because, you know, we, we spent, what, a little over an hour uh, talking, but uh, I've talked to you enough to know that there's probably there's probably a good 10, 20 hours inside of you. Uh, well, that, yeah, could, that, could, that could that could talk about this case. You know a lot about it. So uh, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, blessings to you. Uh, this is Global Storyline, and I'm your host, Dean Arnold, and we've uh, just spent an hour and 15 minutes with Hugh Turley, author of uh, uh, FBI Cover-Up. Failure of the Public Trust, co-author of that, uh, author, author of FBICoverup.com. Uh, go check that website out. It's fantastic. And then uh, also was the co-author of the 20-page appendix to the Star Report or the uh, Report of the Office of Independent Counsel. So privileged to have you on here today, and I enjoyed it as I always do. And I uh, look forward to the next time. Thank you. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.